John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51 this morning. We're finishing up the first chapter of John. Spoiler alert, we will probably not make it all the way through the book in the next three months. Uh, we will definitely not make it through the book in the next three months. My goal is to get through John 2. Uh, so <laughs> it's a little bit short of getting all the way to the end. This is kind of the, the first part where Jesus starts being an active participant in the story. Speaking of Jesus not as the Word, but Jesus and his humanity, Jesus of Nazareth, is going to start being a very active part of the story, the very center of the story. Up until this point, he's certainly been the focus. He's been referenced in the story, but it's primarily focusing on his eternal position as the Word, not necessarily specifically on the facts of his incarnation as Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Then the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. He looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, what are you saying? Or, pardon me, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour, about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found, first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, uh, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Christmas of 2010, we had a brand new baby, Haddon, and uh, we were going to a family reunion down in Phoenix, Arizona. It's always exciting when the family reunions and things like that are in warm climates at Christmas time. It was exciting. We were living here. We're glad to go to Phoenix. It snowed in Phoenix while we were down there, which was not the happiest I've ever been in my life. Still went golfing. I wasn't even really into golfing, but mostly just so I could tell my friends who did like golfing that I went golfing when they were back in Wisconsin. But I, that week we were, we were down there and we were down a couple days before everyone got there. And one of the ideas that we had of something fun to do is what if we go up to the Grand Canyon? 
I wasn't terribly excited about the prospect of going to the Grand Canyon. It was a three and a half hour drive. Like I said, it was cold out. I was going with uh, my wife's brother and his wife, I think girlfriend at the time. Uh, and so it was kind of, yeah, I'd like to go, I guess, but it's a hole in the ground. Like, is it really that exciting? Is it worth driving seven hours and standing in the cold to look at a hole in the ground? I'd already been within 20 miles of the Grand Canyon two times before and had never been able to go. And so Anna really wanted to go, and so I let her convince me, but I probably didn't have the best attitude. I was very cynical the whole way up. And then you get to the Grand Canyon, and you walk up to the edge. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? And you get to the edge, and it's just awe-inspiring. You cannot believe, like, this was not just a hole in the ground. It was lots of holes in the ground. And then holes inside the holes in the ground and holes inside those holes. My whole theory going in is I've been to Yellowstone. I've seen the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone. So there's a Grand Canyon. What difference is it going to make to see this Grand Canyon? What I didn't realize is that the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone is one, is about the same size as one like tiny canyon that you don't even notice because it's in a canyon that's in a canyon in the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is not one canyon, it is a canyon full of canyons full of canyons. And it's awe-inspiring and it just shakes you to your core to see this spectacular creation of God. But when I describe it, what, what diff it's not that exciting. When you look at a picture, I, try, I love showing my kids pictures of different places around the world and to them it's kind of, okay, can we look at cats? Uh, it's not that exciting. However... When you get there, it's something you have to see to believe. It's something you have to see to feel the full impact of it. It dwarfs you. It's 100 miles long, 7 miles across, a mile deep. Those are just numbers until you see them. And when you see them, you cannot believe your eyes. It's beautiful. It's a testimony to the greatness of God and creation. In similar fashion... Jesus is something you must see to believe. If you look at this text, if you go through this text and you just skim it, you'll see these words, the words for sight over and over and over and over again. Let's just, just briefly peruse through this text. Verse 35, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus. He sees Jesus. He says, behold, look at the Lamb of God. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them. So Jesus sees the disciples and he asked them, what are you seeking? What are you trying to see? Verse number 39, uh, he, they asked where he's staying and he says, come and you will see. Verse number 41, uh, Andrew finds his brother Simon and says, we have found, we have seen the Messiah. Brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at Peter, at Simon and sees him. The next day, verse number 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael says, Come on, Nazareth? Nothing good comes from Nazareth. And Philip's response is, Come and see. You have to see this to believe this. And Jesus, he sees Nathanael coming towards him. He says, Behold, look at, see, an Israelite indeed. Then uh, at the end of verse 48, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. 
Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. See how it's just, it's like every verse. Jesus is seeing, they are seeing. Coming on the back of the incarnation text that we had before, where the word becomes flesh, do you get the excitement here? Because we just heard that you cannot see the glory of God. You cannot see God. He, and the reference is back to the text in Exodus where Moses is confronted with the glory of God and he must be hidden from the glory of God. The glory of God affects him so much when he sees the back of God that Moses' face is glowing. And now we get to this. And everyone's saying, see? Come, see, look, this is something that your own eyes can perceive. Behold, this is the Messiah. See him. And Jesus looks at them and he sees to their very heart. He sees them at their core. He sees who Nathaniel is. He sees who Simon is. There is this exchange of sight that happens here. And the result of that exchange is discipleship. When the disciples are seen by Christ and they see Christ as he is, they are compelled to leave everything and follow him. They are compelled, we find in other texts, to leave their nets behind. These fishermen just move on. They leave everything they know. They pick up everything they have and they follow after Jesus. This is an incredibly clever invitation to us from a literary perspective. John has told us where we're going. He's told us that he's writing this so that we might know that Jesus is the Son of God and that we might believe and have life in his name. He, he's, he's writing this for that purpose. And here, he brings us into the story. Because all of these disciples, what's the invitation? Come and see. Come and see. Come and see. And John, the evangelist, is saying to us, come and see. You want to know about this person? Come with me. Walk through this book with me. See Jesus. See who he is. See the Messiah. And there are four series, four introductions to Jesus that happen here. The first one is Andrew and an unnamed disciple. Now in the Gospel of John, the unnamed disciple is generally speaking John. So we don't need to uh, divide the, the church of Christ over this issue, but it is almost certain that the second disciple here who is with Andrew is John the Evangelist, John the one writing this book. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, that's John the Baptist, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. So here's the setting. Jesus, the day before, has come to John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, Look, this is the Lamb of God. And again, it happens, and here, specifically, to these two disciples of John, he says, look, this is the Lamb of God. Well, what's John doing? He's bearing witness. He's fulfilling his purpose. He's saying, you guys are my disciples. Stop being my disciples. Go follow this guy. Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? Seems like a reasonable question. Got these two guys who are following me. I might want to know why these guys are following me. Their answer is a little odd, though. Rabbi, which means teacher, notice this, which means throughout this, he's using Hebrew words and then defining them in Greek. 
That means that he's writing to a Greek audience that he doesn't, need to, he doesn't expect to know Hebrew. That's why this is often thought of as a Gentile-focused book rather than a Jewish-focused book. Um, not that it's not beneficial for a Jew, but that's just kind of the setting of how John is writing. Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So you kind of get the kind of, I mean, think about, put yourself in Andrew and likely John's shoes here. They've realized, John the Baptist saying, behold the Lamb of God. Okay, so if this guy here is the Lamb of God, he is the greatest figure in history. So they're kind of sheepish in their approach. They don't come up to him and say, are you the Lamb of God? They don't come up to him and say, we want to learn from you. They come up to him, and when Jesus says, why, why are you following me? It's almost like they're kind of like sneaking behind, like, we've got to figure this guy out. And Jesus says, why, why are you following me? Well, where do you live? <laughs> what an odd question. But what are they asking? They're saying, can we make an appointment to see you? <laughs> can, can we talk? We, we want to get to know you more. And Jesus, rather than simply telling them, invites them, come, come, and you'll see. Come, and you will see. The same invitation he gives to us through the writing of, the, of John the Evangelist. So they came, and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. An odd detail to include, that it was four o'clock in the afternoon. Why would they include that detail? Think about it. Likely, this is John writing. This is the moment when John's life changed forever. And he remembers it specifically. It was four o'clock in the afternoon when I met Jesus. It sticks out. It was noon when I met Anna. I remember that. It was a significant moment in my life. I was eating some very spicy chicken. And I didn't know if it was rude for me not to finish it. And I had no water. All those details stick out. And then watch this teacher. She was kind of rude to me. Like she didn't talk to me very much. She just kind of came in and went out. Uh, it turns out that's because everyone had been telling her she was going to marry me. And she was not, not on board with this yet. Uh, and she came in. But I remember it very specifically. June 28th, 2007, noon in Saipan. I remember it very clearly. I know what I did for the rest of the day. It sticks out. It's one of those big moments in my life. I remember that night when we took a walk to go to street market. I remember eating chicken on a stick. I remember that as we were walking to the street market, for some reason, Anna and I just kept on getting like 50 feet ahead of everyone else. And the whole group we're with, we're just off by ourselves. We had just met that day. And that, I remember these details. Why? Because it was a big day for me. Everything changed on June 28th, 2007. Changed even more on June 28th, 2008 when we got married. But everything changed at that moment. And so it sticks out. And here, John, the evangelist, who is likely remembering his run-in with Jesus. It was 4 o'clock in the afternoon when I met Jesus. Everything changed. Jesus invites them to come along. And they do. They come and they see, so much so that John is going to write this gospel as a witness to Jesus. And what's going to happen to the other disciple that's present in this story? The other disciple, uh, Andrew, what's he going to do immediately after this? Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Poor Andrew, right? He's one of those guys who's never just Andrew. He is Andrew, the brother of Peter. 
This is kind of one of the very few times we see Andrew present in the account of Jesus' life. Interestingly, in the Gospel of John, every time Andrew pops up, it's always inviting people to come and see Jesus. He, he's an evangelist. He's someone who invites people. But the first person he invites, he meets Jesus, he says, wow, this guy is something special. So the very next day, what does he do? He goes and he finds his brother, Simon. He says, we have found the Messiah. It's a bold proclamation. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Can you imagine this encounter with someone? Your, your, your brother says, hey, I met this guy. He's a great teacher. I think he might actually be God. Um, so that might throw you a little bit. You walk up and you meet this new person and instantly says, oh, Jeremy, good to meet you. Well, I don't like that name. I'm going to call you Bill now. That's the very first experience Peter has with Jesus. He comes up to Jesus and Jesus looks at him and says, you know what? You need a new name. But then consider what's the path that Peter is going through. I mean, the four Gospels are basically the account of Jesus and dumb stuff that Peter does. And Peter is going to stick his foot in his mouth. He's going to do dumb stuff. He's going to deny Jesus. He's going to go through all this stuff. Would you describe Peter at this point, not the Acts 2 part where he's preaching to people, but here, would you describe Peter as a rock? Peter is like a squishy ball of Play-Doh at this point. There is nothing rock-like in Peter here. Yet Jesus, he sees him, and straight to the heart, he knows this is the person on whose confession I'm going to build my church. This is someone who's going to form a foundation for the furtherance of the gospel. And he sees him, he says, Peter, your name's Cephas now. Or he says, Simon, rather. Your name is Cephas. Your name is Rock, Petros. Jesus sees straight to the heart of Peter and Peter is compelled to follow him. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now there's a little bit of debate about this verse. So where it says Jesus decided to go to Galilee, in the original language, it does not say Jesus. That's provided there for us. It could it probably would be better to just translate it, he decided to go to Galilee, because it could be either Jesus or it could be Andrew. It could, it could go either way in this text. That maybe Andrew is someone who's going out to Galilee, finding Philip and calling him to follow him and see Jesus. Could be Jesus was doing it. Either way, what we see here early on is there's this welcoming, this invitation, follow Jesus, see what he's like, and know him. So, they go to the Sea of Galilee, they run into Philip. Well, what's Philip? Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Bethsaida basically means fish city. It's a, it's, a, it's a town that was focused on fishing. It's likely that Philip and Peter and Andrew are all fishermen together. So he found Philip, said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip then doesn't say really what Philip's response was, but merely that immediately, what does Philip do? He finds Nathanael and says to him, We found him, of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Another invitation here. So, Philip is confronted with Jesus and immediately he sees who is this Jesus? What is he? We have found the one 
We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Well, what is Moses and the law and the prophets? The whole Old Testament. He's saying, we have found what the Bible is about. We have found what the scriptures have told us to wait for. And it does not take him long to see that. Now, it's interesting, in other gospel accounts, we see a little bit more of the tension in the disciples as they try and figure everything out. They understand who Jesus is, but they don't understand it in its completion. Jesus is going to spend three years teaching them this. And even then, when he dies, they're going to be afraid, which if they actually understood how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, they shouldn't have been. But they're going to grow in this process as Jesus loves them, as Jesus shepherds them, as Jesus teaches them. But here, right from the get-go, when they see Jesus, they say, this is the guy who the Bible is written about. This is the one we are anticipating. This is the one we are looking for. Nathaniel's response, though, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus is from Nazareth? Kind of like, Jesus is from Chicago? Like, nothing good comes from Chicago. Right? This is like, this is like a, a Duke fan saying, he's a Tar Heel? What? This is, this is someone, he says, this is not, and Justin's not even here. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is something that, that how, could, how could Jesus be from Nazareth? Well, that doesn't make any sense. The, the Son of God, the one who the Old Testament about, he should be coming from Jerusalem, right? He should be coming from the center of the world, not this backwater town, Nazareth. Well, what is Nathaniel's response to his brother? Pardon me, what is Philip's response to his brother Nathaniel? Come and see. Right? Come to the edge of the Grand Canyon and look at it and tell me if it's worth coming. Just, just come on. Come and see Jesus. And so Nathaniel comes. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Just answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Much like Peter, Jesus sees Nathanael and goes straight to the heart. This is an Israelite in whom there's no guile. There's no deceitfulness in him. Compare that to the Pharisees that Jesus is going to be dealing with throughout his ministry. Um, even compare that to John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus sees people claiming to believe in him and he's not going to entrust himself to them. He knows what's going on in their heart. He knows that the Pharisees are deceitful. He knows that the religious leaders have ulterior motives. But Nathaniel comes and he says, here's an Israelite who's just coming to seek the truth. And he welcomes him in. And Nathaniel is like, well, how, how do you know me? And, and even here, well, the, the question, why does Nathaniel ask that? Like, you're going to tell me I'm an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. You literally just met me, Jesus. How in the world do you know that? And then Jesus tells him something that he had no way of knowing. I saw you when you were still under the fig tree. Nathaniel is floored by this. How did Jesus see me? You were here. I was there. You cannot see there from here. So how did you see me, Jesus? 
And knowing that Jesus knew he was under the fig tree, he said, truly, found the king of Israel. Truly, this is the one that I am looking for. You are the son of God. Jesus says, ha, you believe me because I saw you under a fig tree. Just you wait. Come and see. You will see greater things than these. And then he describes the greater things that he will see, saying, truly, truly, I say to you, this is an expression Jesus uses a lot, truly, truly. Uh, the King James would go, verily, verily. Uh, the Greek is amen, amen. So amen, amen. We can be seriously, this is a really big deal. All right, that's what he's saying here. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. What does that mean? You will see heaven open. Well, we actually just sang about the concept this morning. The, the, the skies will be rolled back as a scroll. That's referring to the same idea. The idea that at some point we will look to heaven and we will see God. Right now it's like the windows are closed. We know he's up there, but the windows are closed. Jesus says to Nathaniel, you come and you follow me and those windows are going to open up. You're going to behold heaven. You are going to behold God himself. Come and see. Come and look at what I'm about to do. So he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. Then he also says, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now this expression, uh, when I first read this, my mind went immediately to the Mount of Transfiguration. I was wrong, all right? There's, a, there's a, something unique about John is that he is one of the only uh, gospels that, he is the only gospel that does not record the Mount of Transfiguration. It'd be incredibly odd for him to skip recording it in detail, but then reference it at such a key point where he's saying, this is, this is what's going to happen through the rest of this book. You're going to see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, but then he never actually talks about that specific time where it happens most clearly. So clearly, he's not talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. So the question is, what is he talking about the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Throughout the entire Gospel of John, we don't see a lot of conversation about angels. The closest we get is the, the veiled reference to the, the Spirit coming down as a dove on him. There's really not much reference to even the big areas where we might think this is referring to. So can we find something in the Old Testament that this is very similar to? I think we can. Genesis chapter 28. Genesis 28, verses 10 through 17. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will live, give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. 
Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. There is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So there you see that exact language, the angels ascending and descending on Jacob's ladder. I think we've heard the story of Jacob's ladder. It's one of those that like you tell little kids, but it's kind of like, what's the significance of this ladder, heaven, stuff like that? Well, what's God promising to do here? saying, I am going to be at work in fulfilling my covenant to you. This ladder is the idea that God is reaching down from heaven and accomplishing his purposes. And God had made a covenant to Jacob's grandfather Abraham, and God had made a covenant to Jacob's father Isaac, and God was going to keep that covenant. God was going to be at work in the world keeping the covenant. God was going to be faithful in expanding Israel's borders. God was going to be faithful in blessing Abraham's seed. Yet you come to the time of Christ. And does it seem like God has been faithful to his covenant promises? Does Israel have a land that stretches from north to south and east to west? No. Israel as a political entity is at its smallest. Well, not quite the smallest. It gets worse after that point. But up until that point, there's, just, there's nothing there. They're, they're a puppet government ruled by Rome. They're a province, not even a significant province. The only thing that made Israel significant, made Palestine significant as a province of Rome, was just how annoying they were to Rome when they kept on having all these problems. The promises made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob did not seem to be fulfilled. Yet Jesus says, Jacob, back there, there's a ladder. The angels are descending and descending. God is at work. Jesus says, you follow me, and you're going to see God keeping his promise. You follow me, and you are going to see the bridge between God and heaven separated from you and what's happening in the earth. And really, what is the ladder? It is Jesus himself. Jesus is the way that God, who is outside of his creation, God who is in heaven, God who seems to be inactive, is reaching down into his creation, is fulfilling his promise, is blessing all the nations of the earth, is expanding the territory of Israel. And so Jesus says to Nathanael, come and see God's at work right here. God's fulfilling his promise. You follow me and you will see God keeping his covenant. That's not the only Old Testament reference in this text. There's another one. It says that you will see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the most common name that Jesus used to refer to himself. What does Son of Man mean? Certainly it emphasizes his role as a man. It emphasizes his humanity. But it's also an Old Testament reference to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This is why don't skip reading parts of your Bible. Right? Don't read just the good bits. All right? Don't read just the parts that you can hang on your refrigerator and feel inspired to face your day because you read. Read the whole thing. Because no one here probably thought, you know, I really need a little more Daniel 7 in my life this morning. But this is powerful. No one here opens up the New Testament and automatically jumps to Jacob's ladder. Yet this is the context that Jesus is speaking in. He's referencing these things. Read your whole Bible because there is benefit in all of it. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So again, we've got this covenant language. There's been a promise that there would be a king, an everlasting king. And Daniel is in exile when he writes this. So certainly the everlasting king doesn't seem like it's happening when you're sitting in Babylon getting thrown to lions. Yet Daniel, in his prophecy, says there's going to be coming one like a son of man. And he is going to be the everlasting king. So Jesus here to Nathaniel says, come and see. Come and see. And you are going to see. The angels ascending and descending. You are going to see God breaking into earth. God accomplishing his promises through the Son of Man, one who will be an everlasting king. And so in this simple greeting to Nathaniel, just come along and you'll see these things. There is a richness of the entirety of scripture. This is the one who Moses and the law and the prophets have spoken of. Come and see Come and see that the angels will be ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the center of the universe. And there is a welcome to Andrew. There's a welcome to Peter. There's a welcome to John. There's a welcome to Nathaniel. Come and see. But here's what is truly spectacular and clever and wonderful about this text. We don't see it in English. Let me read it like we live in the southern half of this country. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to y'all. This is a plural you. We don't use plural you. You and use, it doesn't work. All right, and that's Pennsylvania. You is plural. This is an invitation not merely to Nathaniel. It's an invitation not merely to Nathaniel and Peter and Andrew and John. This is an invitation to us. You all will see. Come. Come and look at Jesus. If you don't know what you are looking for in life, look at Jesus. He is the answer. If you're struggling to find meaning in your life, look at Jesus. Jesus. This text is loaded with words that compel us to see him. Look at him. Look at this description of one who bridges the gap between deity and humanity by being both. Look at Jesus and see one who makes good on the promises that God makes in the Old Testament. Look at Jesus and see one who sees you at your innermost self. Look at Jesus and see one who restores those who are alienated. Look at Jesus and see one who raises from the dead. Look at Jesus. The disciples were searching for something and Jesus said, here you go. The disciples did not even understand fully what they were searching for, but Jesus was the answer to such an extent that merely seeing the answer told them the questions. They didn't know what they were asking for, yet Jesus answered the question they could not ask themselves. We expend tremendous amounts of effort trying to understand ourselves. I've been reading lots of psychology lately for classes, and I enjoy it. At times it's irritating, and at times it seems very futile. 
Because what, what psychology ultimately is outside of the Bible is this look at me figuring out myself, okay? or me finding someone else to figure me out. And what it ultimately comes down to is people who are share, have a shared humanity trying to figure out their shared humanity. But you cannot be objective about your humanity when you yourself are human. You cannot be objective without the perspective of the creator. And so our world is filled with this. Now, most of the time, we don't call it psychology because that sounds scary. We call it things like self-help or self-awareness. Socrates says the unexamined life is not worth living. We ought to be looking at ourselves. We ought to be looking inside. We ought to be actualizing ourselves. We ought to know who we are. We, we take personality tests to figure out who we are. We do all these different things, and we're all looking at ourselves. But an approach with Jesus is different. When Nathaniel and Peter and John and Andrew see Jesus, Jesus looks at him and says, I know who you are. I made you. He's the creator. We are formed in his image. So if you want to understand yourself, if you want to be able to navigate this confusing life, if you want to be able to figure out why you do the dumb stuff that you do, if you want to figure out how to stop doing the dumb stuff that you do, look at Jesus. He is the one who made you, and he is the one who is fully human. If you want to understand human anthropology, if you want to understand human personality, don't look in the mirror, look at the Son of God. He is fully man. And when they encounter Jesus in this text, suddenly they are laid bare. More effectively than a thousand hours of overpriced therapy, Jesus looks at them and says, I know who you are. I know who you are. He identifies them. He, he names them even. We are searching, we are dying, we are alone, we are isolated. And the answer to all of those things is look at Jesus. But those of us who have seen Jesus, this text ought to compel us to tell others to look at Jesus. How does Jesus build his following? John tells John and Andrew. Andrew tells Simon Perhaps Andrew, or maybe Jesus, tells um, uh, Philip. Philip tells Nathaniel. All of these people are being welcomed to follow Jesus by other people who have already seen him. Jesus says, come and see, and they respond by saying, come and see. This is the hope for the world. Jesus, the Son of God, the one who the prophets and the law are about, the King this is our hope. Are we like John the Baptist? Are we like John? Are we like Peter or Andrew, Nathaniel, Philip? Are we those who are simply saying, friends, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Or are we trying to hide Jesus because it's awkward? Are we trying to, to look less like Jesus in public because we don't want to have that awkward conversation? Are we trying to, to make it so they don't see him? Or are we like these disciples saying, guys, look at Jesus. This is where hope is found. This is where meaning is found in this life.